Welcome to another episode of the Macrovisor podcast. Today, we'll be talking about oil, China, and some big moves happening underneath the surface of the markets. But before we dive into all of that, I'd like to welcome my wonderful co-host, Aisha. Hi, Mayhem. It's great to be back. Um, so yes, we have quite a few interesting topics to talk about uh, this week. And uh, I think let's start off with oil. What do you say? Yeah, absolutely. There's so much going on in this market. As we're recording, the price of West Texas Intermediate is just hovering over $70. Brent is just hovering over $75. We've seen a pretty big retracement after that recent OPEC meeting, one that was delayed and held remotely. It doesn't seem like the market got what it wanted out of that. Well, not really. But why don't we take a brief step back right before the OPEC meeting and see what was going on over there. So what was driving the price of oil lower uh, prior to, you know, all the chatter from the OPEC meeting. So basically, we have the recession fears. We know that, right? So we've seen the PMI data, we've seen the ISM data, production, ind industrial production, manufacturing data, they're all falling. And it's not just in the US, but globally, we're seeing weaker growth um, across the board. We got Australian GDP data today, which also came in lower. We got India's GDP data, um, I want to say last week, that also came in slightly lower, better than expected, but still lower. Um, China's GDP is falling as well. And so all of these factors are leading to, even if we don't say recession fears, but leading to um, lower growth fears, right? And so that's one thing that obviously um, pushes the price of oil down because of the lack of demand. But we had a few other things also that happened during this period of time, which sort of came to a head, um, let's say, you know, in November. And one of that was poor refinery margins and poor, you know, refinery runs. So basically what we saw was gasoline stocks were building in the U.S., which is why gasoline prices went down quite a bit. And when you have a situation like that and you have oil prices higher, what happens is your margin starts to compress, right? So you don't make as much profits and therefore you don't want to run the refineries because you're not profiting from it. So that was one aspect of it. And so since you are not refining more oil, you have less demand for crude and that pushes down the price of crude. And then the other thing that happened during this time was better than expected supply. Now, just, to, just so that everybody understands, seasonally, this is a time, November is actually one of the best months for oil seasonally. And that's because production levels are usually higher in the month of November than any other month, right? So we have a crude stock build during the month of November. But what happened this time is we started to see supply coming in higher than expected from the US, from Brazil, and from Guyana. And so Guyana wasn't very well, uh, let's say, developed um, some time back. So we only saw Exxon, you know, start to develop, you know, oil there, I want to say 2015. That's when I think they discovered the oil. So over the course of the last five years, they have developed, you know, the oil fields there. Um, but um, this time around, I think, you know, the, the production came in much higher than expected. So all these three three things basically started to push down the price of oil. And then from there, we started to hear about the OPEC meeting. Now, 
the expectation out of the OPEC meeting was obviously for further cuts to the production levels. So everybody was expecting a deeper cut from Saudi or, you know, from OPEC and OPEC plus in general. But what we wrote about going into the OPEC meeting was that Saudi was in a difficult position. Most of the OPEC and OPEC plus countries have been producing and exporting more than they should have been. And this meant that the brunt of the production cuts was borne by Saudi. And we saw that in their GDP. So their GDP came out for the third quarter GDP was down four and a half percent year on year. And oil services, oil related activities were down, I want to say 17 percent year on year, which is quite a steep decline for Saudi Arabia. Right. And that's because they actually stuck to their production quota they actually stuck to the lower levels. And um, they took the highest amount of cuts as well. So here we have a country who is taking the highest amount of cuts, who is suffering uh, in their GDP growth because of that, right? Just to help the other oil-producing countries. And then you have the other oil-producing countries who are not playing ball with with them, right? So we have a situation where um, this is why I believe that, you know, the OPEC uh, meeting was delayed. I know everybody talked about, you know, the African quotas and stuff like that, but I think there was more to it than that. And of course, I put out a note to that effect going into the meeting with, you know, all the explanation there. We're at a situation now where they've declared 2.2 million barrels of voluntary cuts in production. If we take this amount from what they were supposed to produce in 2024, there's actually no change to the level that they're producing right now. It's more or less the same, give or take, let I want to say a few million barrels. So it's like maybe one or two million barrels difference. So given that circumstance, the supply levels haven't really changed. But what has changed is a bit of a reallocation in the amount of production cuts that each of the countries was supposed to take. Right. So and Saudi's level has now come down a little bit. Given this situation, um, so the supply level hasn't changed. um, And therefore, you know, everybody's seeing this as a nothing burger. And that's why we're seeing the price of oil go down, because those first three factors that I talked about in the beginning, those are still playing in through the market. And that's what's causing the price of oil now to resume its downward trend. What happens next, in my view, um, and this is just something that, you know, I'm thinking about, the one thing that Saudi can do is to flood the market. And this is not the first time that they would be doing it. They've done this twice before. In fact, they've done it a few times before. But in recent history, they've done it in 2014. They've done it in 2020. And they flood the market, push the price of oil so low that, you know, the other countries wake up and they decide, okay, now we need to start sticking to our quota if we want the price of oil to remain high enough for us to make money. And that could be a way for them to strong arm the other countries in the OPEC and the OPEC plus cartel. It remains to be seen if that's done. But for sure, what we know for now is that countries like Iran who don't have a quota are actually producing really, really large amounts of oil now. I, I, the last estimate is three and a half million barrels, which is, you know, quite a huge amount for them. 
The reason they don't have a quota is because they cried about sanctions and they said that, you know, they couldn't meet a quota and all of that. But things have changed now. And not only have they changed in terms of the level of production, but they've also changed as to where they're selling. So Iran is now selling a lot of oil to, uh, to China, which was originally a market that Saudi Arabia supplied to. And so Iran is trying to fill that gap from Saudi Arabia's cuts. And when you look at the whole situation, it's not great all around. It just seems like even though they're a cartel and they should be sticking together, they're not really sticking together. And we saw news today as well coming out of Russia saying that Russia is actually making more revenue from oil than they did before the war. And um, that's not something that was supposed to happen either. And one of the reasons they didn't take deeper cuts was because they said because of the sanctions, they would not be able to stick to the production quota. So everything considered, I think the cartel, I wouldn't say that they're having problems, but I wouldn't say, I would say that not everything is, you know, smooth sailing here. So while all of this is going on, the market is seeing what they originally saw in terms of the supply of oil, in terms of lower demand. And therefore, oil has resumed its decline from where we saw it in November. And it's it seems like, and these are all very interesting points that you've brought up, so thank you for sharing them. It, it seems like the net takeaway here is even though we think of OPEC as a group, when we hear about OPEC and OPEC+, Plus, we kind of think of, okay, they're a group, they work towards these common goals. In reality, that's not how that's playing out. And there are some significant outliers there that may have more than made up for the cuts that were promised by the participating members in these cuts. And therefore, supply may have even grown during that time period. It sounds like that's one of the other levers that's pushed price down. Not only has there been a lack of demand, particularly in manufacturing and you know, in construction slowing down globally, these industries have been in contraction in many countries outside of outliers like India that are just growing gangbusters. You know, you've seen a pretty big slowdown. You've also seen a slowdown in mining and you know, that's a big consumer of oil. So there's all these areas where we're sort of seeing both sides pushing down price, increasing supply, dropping demand. And it seems like that's sort of set the stage for at least some more motivation to be concerned about, you know, if you're a producer here and your budget is set on the price of oil. And this is a point that you've made continuously that there's countries in OPEC where if oil isn't above, you know, 75 Brent, if it's an act or above, I should say, that they're underwater on their budget. So it seems like we're getting to that point now where, you know, either there's some concern and there's some more participation or maybe, like you said, Saudi leans in and kind of forces their hand. But it does seem like we're at this sort of inflection point or near it with regards to what's happening to oil and how OPEC members may respond. You're absolutely right. And going back to your point of, you know, them producing more, in fact, um, we did this I did this calculation, right? And it's all there in that article that I wrote going into the OPEC meeting. Um, it's about, I want to say, 4 million barrels per day more than what they should be producing, which is quite a lot, right? So really, they said they were going to cut by 2 million or so. And it ended up that actually supply increased rather than coming down by 2 million, it increased by 4 million? Overall, yes, for the OPEC countries. Wow. 
And and then this is also during a time where in aggregate, the U.S. has also been expanding its supply. You know, production coming out of the Permian Act was much better than expected. And that's why we've had this crude build in the U.S., where, you know, suddenly you see crude stocks going up massively. Another reason, obviously, was because of the refinery margins. But production itself coming out of the Permian has been much better than expected. It's really interesting. So I, I really appreciate all your thoughts on oil. It sounds like for folks that are out there that are investing in the industry, this is a time to be really observant as to what's happening overseas and here at home with regards to supply and demand. We're at this inflection point going into 2024. It seems like there's going to be opportunities here. Certainly there's players in the energy industry that are much more attractively valued than other parts of the market. But it also seems like we're sort of in a moment of waiting and seeing to see how this all shakes out. Does that sound like an accurate assessment of the folks out home kind of looking at whether or not to invest in energy at this juncture? Absolutely. I, I think that, you know, it's too soon to tell what will happen next. Okay. And as far as OPEC is concerned, we never know what they're going to decide. No matter how much you hear in the media that, you know, there's leaks here, leaks there. These leaks come out because the OPEC wants you to know these leaks. Okay, these these are these aren't real leaks. Um, so they are very they close it. They they play it very close to the chest. They they're not going to let you know people know exactly what they're thinking. And so everything that so the theory that Saudi may flood the market is just a theory for now. And, and this is not investment advice by any means. We still have to see what they do, and what comes off of this recent visit from you know. Vladimir Putin to UAE and then Saudi. He, he just landed here to, today and then he's going to Saudi soon. So let's see what they talk about. If they're talk, going to talk about oil, if they're going to talk about further cuts, we don't know. It sounds like you know, Saudi kind of went into this meeting hoping it was going to be like herding sheep and it ended up being a bit more like herding cats. You could say so. <laughs> so let's shift gears a little bit here to a country where We've heard so much over the last year and several months about the potential, about the 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 really trajectory to escape from, you know, after the COVID lockdowns had ended that really, and I'm talking about China, we were going to see this great escape velocity reached by the economy, that all the stimulus that's been repeatedly promised by the government and that we've been increasingly skeptical of because we haven't seen it come to fruition, that this was going to really flood into the economy, ameliorate issues in real estate, the lack of demand from their exports, and really get that third leg of the economy back and involve the Chinese consumer. And yet, we're not really seeing it. And as this is all happening, exports continue to not really resume their uh, growth that we had seen in years prior. And developments in real estate seem, if anything, to be getting worse rather than better. What do you make of what's going on in China? Because so much of the world is paying attention to the second biggest economy, at least for now, and how much that matters to what the trajectory of global growth is going to be in 2024. So I think we've talked a lot about China over the last couple of months. But, you know, as we're seeing all of this develop, the central issue in China is their property market. Okay. And it's arguably worse than any of us could have imagined. And unfortunately, the property market has a domino effect. And then gradually what we're seeing is 
this property market declining is having so many knock-on effects, not just, you know, towards the cons- not just for the consumer and for property buyers, but also for the local government and the local government funding vehicles, right? So we thought initially, and China is not an easy market to cover unless, you know, you are from China. So covering it from an outside perspective and, you know, the limited amount of data that you get, it's it's difficult for you to completely ascertain what's going on there, right? And so in our minds, we thought a couple of these problems were unrelated or they were like several little problems. Um, but now what we're seeing is all of these are very, very much interrelated. And so the situation is arguably worse than we had imagined. It feels like with China's real estate market, this is something that's been developing now for at least two years. The problems at Evergrande and then following on Country Garden, the real estate market in China itself, at its peak, having a value of about $65 trillion, which at that time would have made it the largest market of any asset class on earth. The U.S. stock market worth about $48 trillion or so in total market cap across all the listed stocks. So this is a very important market, and there's exposure to it, not just from within the Chinese financial system, their banks, their shadow banking, consumers, various other businesses in, in pockets of commercial real estate, but also outside in, in the debt, in the property market directly. There are other investors in Europe, in the U.S., and other parts of Asia that also have exposure to a variety of these vehicles. So it it sounds like that knock-on impact, that domino effect you talked about, it's at home, but it's also to some extent abroad. And so far, there's been some level of success in ring-fencing that knock-on exposure. The government doing enough stimulus, the central bank doing enough stimulus to sort of keep these contagion effects from really spreading. But it feels like maybe that's not necessarily going to be sustainable. That is to say, unless they really ratchet up the containment and stimulus efforts, it sounds like this is a larger problem than they currently have their arms around. You're absolutely right. So in terms of those stimulus measures that came out on a piecemeal basis, a lot of those went to plug smaller holes, let's say. And many of them were for, you know, to contain the situation from outside investors, right? But as you know, yesterday, Moody's sort of downgraded their outlook, not their actual rating, but their outlook from stable to negative on China. And I was reading some of the notes that they put out on China. And um, so one thing that they highlighted was this: these regional and local governments, um, they do land sales to the property market, right? And 37% of their revenue in 2022 came from land sales to property developers. And so with the shrinking property sector, a lot of those land sales are going to go away. Now, based on those land sales, they had issued these local government bonds, right? And so they have to sort of repay this debt. Now, one thing that we highlighted several months ago in some of our notes on China was that the Chinese government wasn't stepping in to help these local government entities to repay their debt. Okay, so they were saying, your debt, sell your land, do what you need to do to, you know, finance your or refinance your own debt. So some of that debt 
did get restructured. And some of that debt was actually refinanced with the help of certain stimulus measures. So there has been a little bit of, you know, help over here, even though they said they were not going to help, they did have to come in and help. But then what they see is like another one third of this debt so which is about 40% of China's GDP, this, is, this comes from state-owned entities, they have an interest coverage ratio of less than 1%, less than one times, which means that they can't even cover, the cash flows cannot cover even the interest. Forget about the principal. And so this is an unsustainable situation. And the reason for Modi's to sort of uh, cut the rating outlook was that Eventually, the government will have to step in and provide sufficient stimulus measures um, in order to support this situation. So what they're trying to say is, yes, the government will step in, and that's why we are not going to cut the rating. But by the government stepping in, this is going to put massive pressure on the government's finances. And therefore, we still see you know, the outlook for now to be negative. Those local government funding vehicles, these are also a, a pretty significant component of corporate debt issuance, of total debt issuance in China. As you were alluding to, 40% of GDP here, this is a pretty significant area that has gone overlooked for the most part by those who have been really optimistic about what may happen in China. And that's not to say that maybe eventually when these things have been dealt with and they're behind us, there's not opportunity there. But it sounds like in the here and now, there's a significant amount of interconnectivity both within China from these local governments to the property developers on one hand, to the national government on another, because there's, they're going to have to come in at some point before you know this becomes a greater contagion. And it sounds like there's actually quite a bit of, shall we say, bailing out to do. Because even when you've ameliorated the concerns on the balance sheets of these local governments, what of the property developers, which are also an increasingly, I would say, vulnerable component of industry, we're starting to see more and more signs that that stress is growing. It sounds like 2024 for China is going to be another year of sort of muddling along through this mess with increasing left tail risk that something may not go right and increasing exposure for the government to have to do more and more. And as they do, as Moody's is pointing out, as you're saying, that's not going to have a lot of positive impacts on the economy. There's going to be less money to actually stimulate in areas that may lead to direct growth and more money going into just sort of Band-Aid fixes and trying to tie up the current system so it doesn't collapse. That's right. So I think, first of all, the stimulus measures have not been adequate at all, right? So um, there are estimates that the cash flow required, the total cash flow required right now for these property companies, and this is not just in terms of debt repayment, but also to finish the properties that they have started. So a lot of these properties were off-plan sales, which means that you sell the property while they're still under construction, right? And then you have a payment plan in place. So with every milestone, you receive payments. But, you know, because all of these property developments have been delayed, it's all piled up and it's in a situation right now where a lot of the projects have been stalled, right? And then, so there's been estimates that 
these property developers need something around 18 trillion yuan to in cash flows to repay debt to you know get on with their projects blah 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 and for now what we know is you know the government has sort of supported something around 2 trillion yuan so we're a far cry from where we need to be and this is only the pop, the cash flow required by the property developer we're not considering the regional governments the local governments and these local government financing vehicles so there's a lot of layers to this and so when you said that you know I, people are not considering all these issues i think it's because there are so many layers and as i just said that we didn't realize how interconnected all of these situations are right and how each of them are you know sort of you know playing on the other so when you bring in the consumer into this one reason that the consumer is not spending is because they are seeing that all these properties that they had invested in are half done not finished and so they don't want to buy further property they don't want to spend any more they're seeing that there is a problem there on the ground and so they're trying to stick to their savings they're keeping their savings in the bank they don't want to spend right now because they're feeling that things are not right there things are not right with the economy yeah it it, it feels like it, and this goes back to a bloomberg appearance you had where you mentioned that same phenomenon where they really need to put 18 trillion in and they're putting 2 trillion or about 80% insufficient in terms of their response versus what needs to happen. And when you talk about the consumer, their psychology has been destroyed. They've been in, in periodic lockdowns. They have no idea what's coming next. And so that part of the economy isn't like, likely to get better for that reason, compounding the reasons you mentioned, that they've seen their properties not turn around. So they're not likely to get back involved with that as well. And exports are not likely to improve with what's happening with their biggest export countries in Asia, in Europe, and in the U.S., and developers are continuing to teeter. So as we recap China, what are your final thoughts here? What, what other things would you like to add on so that people who are looking at China as we close out this year and begin next year can kind of consider in their global strategy? So ending the year, the one thing that we are looking at is all these government meetings that are meant to take place. So we have the Politburo meeting, and then we have um, the Central Economic uh, Meeting, CEWC, they call it. And so <clears throat> during these meetings, they're going to set uh, the growth target, the GDP growth target for China for next year, right? And this year's target was at 5%, where I, I think they're barely going to meet this target. And so one of the issue of having this target was that if they met this target, then they wouldn't be doing a lot more in stimulus measures because that you know we're meeting the target. We don't need to do a lot more in stimulus measures. Growth is fine. That was kind of the idea. But going into next year, what target at will be very important. Now Moody's is projecting four percent. I know uh, Goldman Sachs is saying something like four point eight percent. The general consensus is four point five percent. So we're going to have to see how that plays out. And for China, that is very very low because their average growth rate for the last I think fifteen years has been somewhere around seven eight percent. So. In terms of China, this is not a recession because it's not negative growth, but at the same time, it is a recession if you look at it from China's lens, right? So 
that's something that we want to keep an eye on. What growth target China sets for themselves, because that is going to dictate how much um, they're going to help all these companies and make sure that, you know, the growth target is met and it is, you know, something that can be sustained, like this debt and everything can be cleared in an orderly fashion. Absolutely. That makes a lot of sense. Really appreciate your thoughts on China. And for those out there that are interested in learning more about what we're talking about here, I just want to take a break to say that we cover these subjects on our website, macrovisor.com. Our premium members gain the benefit of our insights as we share them. So this research, while we're sharing bits and pieces on our podcast and in media appearances on Bloomberg and Fox and Offshark, we're also covering this in great detail as these trends are taking shape to try to provide our members that edge in the world of macro meets momentum finds opportunity. So we're going to move on with that theme in mind, macro meeting momentum and the opportunity that can create, because that's one of the ways that we're able to produce uh, alpha in using these strategies. We're not just looking at the big picture, but we're distilling it into where price action can agree with our view, and therefore we can qualify that there's an opportunity, there's a, a potential to outperform the broader market or the benchmarks that we're looking at. So one of these areas that I've had my eye on, Aisha, and I think you'll like this theme, is value versus growth. And so we first saw it in the small caps, right? There is the trade of looking at long small cap value, short small cap growth. That trade continues to work. There's that relative strength that qualifies and it's a trade that makes sense because something like 40 or 50% of the Russell 2000 doesn't make money. Most of those companies are in the IWO ETF. The ones with the stronger balance sheets and greater free cash flow are in the IWN value small cap ETF. And in an environment of raise, uh, rising rates and uh, less availability of debt and tightening liquidity overall, those growth small caps may not do as well as a value where they're already profitable. They may have cleaner balance sheets. They're more likely to outperform. And so we're looking at these types of trades where macro meets momentum, because this is where we believe that we're also able to provide an edge. And this is a theme that we're going to look at going into 2024, really until the Fed starts to turn around on their policy in a way where they're starting to cut again. So value versus growth in this end cycle environment is one of those themes. It's something where we qualify it by looking at the idea and then putting up a ratio chart to say, okay, what does IWO versus IWN look like? You know, you can do that on stock charts, putting a colon between the two. You can also look at the larger cap value versus growth, because now we're starting to see that relative strength that was represented in the small caps and then the mid caps work its way up to the large caps. And that is looking at IVX versus IGX. This is the large cap indices. And we can see that same relative strength. And what is that telling us? That there is a rotation. This relative strength, relative weakness. The idea here is if you're a money manager, you're generally long only. As a result, you can't just say, I'm going to hide in treasuries or cash. You actually have to put your money somewhere, usually about 80, 90% equities. So 
if you're a small cap manager and you have the flexibility to change whether you're in value or growth, you might lean more towards value in an environment like this. Similarly, as we go up the different factors of size, we see that same rotation in mid cap and large cap. And we don't have a lot of value in the mega cap space, but what we do see is distribution from mega caps over the last uh, at least 12 trading days. There's been more often than not distribution there and then more buying in some of these other parts of the market. So another theme that that leads us into is equal weight versus market cap weight. This is an area of the market like value versus growth where we're a little bit less crowded in the investment flows that we've seen in the equal weight, market cap weighted, and especially the mega caps are very crowded. The top 10 stocks in the S&P 500 have accounted for 90% of the growth in the index this year, which is incredible. That's so concentrated that it tells us that really wherever this goes, we're looking for this idea of continuation of outperformance from equal weight versus market cap weight. It's a theme that started really over the last week or so. We believe we can build into that, taking starter positions here, adding to them over the next several months, long equal weight in equal weight to market cap, meaning we're rebalancing that long short portfolio once a week on Friday. And the theme is this, we've had most of the market performance from the mega caps this year. Going into next year, they may take a breather, they may roll over a bit, but because equal weight really didn't participate and it's objectively much more attractively valued, we think that that will hold its value or outperform the mega caps, either on a relative basis or even as equal weight could lead the market next year. Either way, we believe this trade is more attractive than just being concentrated in Microsoft, Apple, Google, NVIDIA, Meta, and others going into next year. Finally, a theme that is very interesting to us is emerging markets versus developed markets, but being very selective. So, some consider China an emerging market. At Macrovisor, one thing we don't consider China is an emerging market. We think that, in fact, everything we're seeing right now is making that very clear. Now, maybe it's run like an emerging market, but the amount of growth that has been pulled forward and the amount of sort of this economy acting a little bit more tired, a little bit more like a developed economy that's reached its peak over the last 10 years, we feel China fits into the developed market category for that reason. As a result, when we're looking at emerging markets in the year ahead, we're not only looking away from China, we're also looking away from the countries that have a lot of exposure, needing Chinese demand to help fulfill their economic growth trajectories. And so that provides us with some opportunities for our subscribers to look at one example that we've identified earlier and continue to like, just to give a sense as to what we're looking at, is Mexico. Mexico, as Aisha was doing her research, she noticed one very interesting thing. Do you want to share that about their central bank? Because this is such an interesting aside and one of the reasons we like them. What makes Mexico unique is that they kept on hiking and then they held rates and they held firm, right? So there was no discussion even of cutting rates until this very last meeting that happened. And so they were very, let's say, goal-oriented and they stuck to their goal. 
And, and as a result of which, their inflation has come down. And it's interesting because of the contrast. In, in the U.S. at the time that Mexico was hiking, we were being told by Powell that inflation was transitory. And it, Janet Yellen told us that inflation was transitory. The official administration's line on this whole thing was inflation was transitory. So there was no action taken for fear of the repercussions of other outbreaks of COVID outweighing the concern of inflation becoming more structural. At the time, it seemed like a reasonable take. But Mexico and other emerging markets said otherwise. They said, we've seen this before. We need to get ahead of this because we've fought inflation on and off for so long that we know what it looks like when it gets out of control. And so to their credit, they did get ahead of it. It is, a, you know, in their terms of inflation under control around what, four, four and a quarter or something like that in Mexico year over year. And, and that market is more attractive to us. There's better valuations. There's more reshoring. It's defining greater growth in manufacturing and construction to bring that manufacturing capacity online as they expand it. It's just for us an area that's been a little bit overlooked. Now more people are starting to look at it. But when we identified it to our subscribers, it was a play that was under allocated. And we still feel it's relatively under allocated. But this is an example of the type of research we do where we look at this big picture and then we drill down to where we feel the themes and the trends that we've identified could provide investment opportunities. Now, as we talk about the year ahead, it's interesting to note that now when we look at Fed funds futures, it's pricing in five cuts to start as early as March with over 60% certainty. This is a little bit optimistic in terms of what may be likely versus, you know, essentially a soft landing doesn't portend to five cuts. A hard landing portends to five cuts. Something breaking portends to five cuts. And it's interesting because we've also heard from the big banks, Citigroup and Bank of America saying QT to stop earlier than expected. Citigroup identifying that time period as this, you know, really at the end of the first half of next year or in July, you know, sometime in early July. And at the same time, Citigroup setting the S&P target to hit 5,000 by the end of June. So it, it's interesting to look at the contrast of saying, on the one hand, we're looking for the S&P to hit all-time highs. On the other, we're saying the Fed is going to stop tightening. So, uh, you know, from our perspective, we're a little bit less aggressive on where the Fed is going next year, Aisha. I think we're in agreement that maybe one or two cuts next year, unless something bigger breaks and maybe the Fed tries to do QT as long as they can, because they've really run up a rather enormous balance sheet and there's still more running off of that balance sheet to do from here particularly on the on the treasury side well this has been a great conversation really enjoyed talking about oil china what's happening in some of these markets and where these pair trades and other opportunities to generate excess returns may be in the themes that we identify for the year ahead so i should appreciate you joining me hope everyone out there enjoyed the conversation Feel free to leave us a review on Apple, Google, Spotify, Amazon, wherever you listen to our podcast. And check us out on the web at macrovisor.com where you can subscribe, get access to our free content. And if you enjoy that and what we've talked about here, upgrade to premium with a free seven-day trial so you can try before you buy. We'll catch you next time, everyone. Thanks for listening.